Anna Howland, thank you so much for that. It wasn't that long ago that she was baptized right here in this church. <clears throat> and her mother wanted us to know that in this sanctuary, she asked the Lord for a miracle uh, for Anna and felt the assurance that God was going to answer that prayer, and indeed he has. Uh, so we're very grateful to God for, for that experience of worship. Well, when I was in college, there was a campus minister at my school who would meet with students in the cafeteria and ask us four questions to take the conversation a little bit deeper. He would ask, do you have any spiritual beliefs? If you were wrong, would you want to know? What have you heard about Jesus? And would you like to learn more? Now what stands out to me is that second question. If you were wrong, would you want to know? I don't know if this campus minister realized it or not, but at the time he was kind of breaking an unspoken rule in our culture, right? It feels almost a little bit rude. Uh, it's so personal. Questions about our spiritual beliefs today we understand to be expressions of our sort of deepest identity. So to ask if you could be wrong about your spiritual beliefs is sort of to ask if you could be wrong about you, which just doesn't make sense. I almost wanted to find myself saying, you know, no to that second question, just to get him off my back, right? Now, if I were wrong, I wouldn't want to know. Thank you very much. End of conversation. But the fact is, if I'm more honest, the reality is sometimes you would want to know. You'd want to know if you were wrong. And I would too. Like if I were to say to you, hey, I don't think that gal would ever uh, go out with a guy like me. I'd want to know if I was wrong. Or hey, um, I, I have a ticket to Vancouver, BC, not Vancouver, Washington. Right? I'd want to know if I was wrong about that. Or if I said, that is definitely, this is definitely not poison ivy. Right? I'd want to I'd know. So if you're listening to this conversation that we're having uh, this fall and, and you're not sure, I, I want to say you're in a good place. To be not sure helps. You'll never be able to change your mind unless you're not sure about something. And if you can get you in, yourself into a place where you are not sure about something, there is the possibility of uh, change and growth and ultimately knowing truth. So I want to close the series with a single question uh, today, and that question is, what would it take to let Jesus change your mind? What would it take to let Jesus change your mind? I, I want to invite you to wrestle with that question. I can't answer it for you, but I, but I would hope that you'd pray about it and that you'd, you'd come up with a next step you could take after these several weeks of talking about those things about which we are not sure. A next step. And to help us with this question, I'm going to invite us to read the scripture together, as we always do. And uh, we'll read Acts 26, verses 24 through 29. Uh, but before we do read that, let me just give you a little bit of background and kind of set the scene of what happens here in Acts chapter 6. Th this is a, a chapter in which we meet the rarest of all beasts, so to speak, a man who changed his mind. Right? Okay, so the man is a man named Saul or Paul. He's actually arrested for changing his mind. 
Turns out there's a new governor in Judea. His name is Festus. He's a young guy, very prestigious position to be appointed this by the Roman emperor. Uh, and, and so other dignitaries are coming to celebrate his rise to power as he assumes the purple, as, as they say. One of those dignitaries is a relatively minor king named Agrippa, who's just given a little area in northern Israel around the Sea of Galilee and a bit north towards Lebanon. Uh, he wants to, maybe some of this cachet will rub off on him, so he comes to celebrate uh, Festus, this new governor. And these two men and a number of other dignitaries are in the great hall, the maritime palace of Herod the Great there on the Sea of Mediterranean, beach, beach house, and they're, they're listening to the man who changed his mind. Tell us what happened. And he goes through his story, and as Paul gets kind of to the good part, all of a sudden, Festus can't take it anymore. And he erupts with outrage and breaks in and interrupts the Apostle Paul. Now, this is where we pick up the story. So let me invite you to turn your Bible to Acts 26, verse 24 through 29. If you're able, let's stand together. We'll put it on the screen if you don't have the text handy. Um, and let's read aloud together as an act of worship. So when we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. And if you believe it or are coming to believe it, you could say thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's holy word. While he was making this defense, Festus exclaimed, you are out of your mind, Paul. Too much learning is driving you insane. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking the sober truth. Indeed, the king knows about these things, and to him I speak freely. For I am certain that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Agrippa said to Paul, are you so quickly persuading me to become a Christian? Paul replied, whether quickly or not, I pray to God that you, not only you, but also all who are listening to me today might become such as I am except for these chains. This is the word of the Lord. Grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. If you were wrong, would you want to know? Well, Agrippa's not sure. Can you tell that? Uh, but Paul, Paul, something happened to Paul around the year A.D. 33. Uh, we read about this in Galatians chapter 1, verse 23. People said, Paul writes, the one who formerly was persecuting us is now proclaiming the faith he once tried to destroy. And we go, wow, what happened? What changed his mind? Now, I don't know if you know anything about the Apostle Paul. You kind of think, this might not be an easy mind to change, right? I mean, we're reading Paul right now, many of us. Um, remember, Paul was raised a Roman citizen. He was raised a committed Jew. He's the great Rabbi Saul of Tarsus. He lived in a little town of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, called Tarsus. When he was in his 20s, he had done so well in school, his parents sent him away to the big time. And he went down to Jerusalem. Well, you always go up to Jerusalem because it's on a hill. He went up to Jerusalem to study there with the greatest living rabbi of the day, a man named Gamaliel. And Gamaliel was actually the grandson of Hillel, the greatest rabbi perhaps ever 
in uh, Judaism. Uh, we get uh, his name uh, for our Hillel Center here at University of Washington. This is his grandson, Gamaliel. Paul comes to grad school in Jerusalem to study uh, and become a rabbi. He was brilliant. This mind, Paul's, was brilliant. Quick, educated, accomplished, notorious. He had a reputation, and you can hear it in the words of Festus when he says, you are out of your mind, Paul. Too much learning is driving you insane, right? This is his reputation. the favorite verse of grad students, by the way. So if Paul lived today, his resume would read like this, Harvard, Yale, and of course, UW, maybe even a degree from SPU, right? I mean, today he'd be like a Supreme Court justice in our culture, like RBG, RGB, RBG, or Samuel Alito, SA, right? We would hold him in the highest possible regard, and we'd think of him as a mature thinker with an articulated philosophy that's very clear. Intellectually, this mind is a force of nature, the Apostle Paul. And his mind is fixed. He knew what he believed, and he was publicly committed to it. When he's in Jerusalem, he tells us he becomes a Pharisee. It's here he becomes a rabbi and a leader among Pharisees. To the Galatians, he boasts of his credentials. He says, I advanced in Judaism beyond many among my people of the same age, for I was far more zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. Uh, to the Philippians, he boasts of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And about that business of persecuting the church, while Paul is in Jerusalem, there is this rumor that just three years earlier, a Galilean who had been committed, uh, who had been convicted of a crime and crucified as he ought to have been on a cross, this rumor, then he came back from the dead. And this, of course, infuriates the faithful, Paul among them. This, to him, could only be a cult, a diminishing of Judaism, a threat to God's people and God's faith, faith in God. And this is what he tells Agrippa. If you just look earlier in Acts 26, he says, Indeed, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things against the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is what I did in Jerusalem. With the authority received from the chief priests, I not only locked up many of the saints, meaning Christian believers, in prison, but I also cast my vote against them when they were being condemned to death. By punishing them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And since I was so furiously enraged at them, I pursued them even to foreign cities. You go, wow, this guy's got like Taliban level certainty. He's, he's saying, I went to synagogues in foreign cities. I, I found there's anybody there who professed faith in Jesus. I had a way of surfacing them. And then I would try to force them to curse Jesus, to blaspheme. And I would throw them in a prison. I, I would oftentimes kill them. In fact, the first time we meet this man, the Apostle Paul, in the book of Acts, is at the, at the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. And there we read, they laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. There he is, breathing death threats. Saul is his Hebrew name, by the way. This was a mind that must have seemed absolutely unchangeable. And yet, here he is. I mean, here he is in this great audience hall. 
He'll never throw another stone at a person. He'll never see the inside of a prison unless he himself is arrested for his faith in Jesus. Wow! This is a man who changed his own mind. And you go, how did that happen? And the answer is simply, Jesus broke into his life. How else can you explain this but that Jesus broke into his life? This is the original Damascus Road experience, right? You know that phrase? This is where it comes from. Jesus breaks into his life. He's there on the road from Jerusalem to Damascus, and all of a sudden, great flash of light, someone's taking pictures. No, it could be Jesus. A voice, I'm hearing things. No, it could be Jesus. And he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? To which Saul says, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And then the most beautiful expression of the gospel in uh, the end of verse 17. He says, I'm sending you, Paul, to open their eyes, that is the Gentiles, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This is the gospel. Paul, here's the gospel. So clearly. He said, I'm, I'm going to open eyes, Paul. That's what I do. I open eyes. I open minds. I help people turn. I help people change from darkness to light. And this is not about their agency. It's about mine. This is the power of God, freeing people from the power of Satan. This is a revolution. And it's not on the basis of works. No, I forgive people. I forgive you of your sin. And I give you a place among those who are declared holy by me through faith, not through works, but through faith. I mean, there's the gospel. Now, this isn't just evidence. Okay, he's seeing Jesus in some sense, risen from the dead. But this is about the power of God to change a mind. Jesus is breaking in now to Paul's life literally with salvation. This is the gift of salvation for Paul. And Paul changes his mind. And so here's the point for us today, friends. To find the life you're meant to find, you have to let him change your mind. Okay, I know that's a little cheesy, but I'm saying it that way because I want you to remember it. That's the big idea today. To find the life you're meant to find, you have to let him change your mind. Now look, this is not easy for Paul. Um, He's so disoriented, he can't see. Uh, For days afterwards, he can't eat food for three days, no one believes his mind has been changed, let alone his, his, his life. They, the Christians don't want to get anywhere near him, right? And he's got to discover a whole new way of living. There are whole patterns that have to change around this new way of thinking that Jesus has given him. But he welcomes it. He welcomes it because he has met the risen Savior, Jesus. He's alive. And there's so much peace and joy that comes from that realization for Paul. He, for me, he would say, to live is Christ. This is his life now, Jesus. So this is what I, I'm saying. Paul teaches us to find the life you're meant to find. You have to let him change your mind. And I want to just say, that's been my experience as well. And if you'll forgive me, i just tell you a little bit about my story. I hesitate to do this too much. Some of you heard some of it. But Jesus first broke into my life when I was in high school. The first time I can remember 
hearing the good news of Jesus. I was in high school, and I didn't understand so much of what this person was sharing with me. But I, I understood enough to know I wanted Jesus. I needed uh, Jesus. And so I said yes to him there in high school. But, as Pee Wee Herman says, everybody's got a big butt. I didn't let him change my mind. Not very much. My mind had been shaped by the culture in which I was raised. It had been shaped by upbringing in a, a family that did not go to church or believe anything particularly about Jesus. I, my mind was shaped by my anxieties and my ambitions. I was launched in life by my family on a success fast track. Boarding school, Ivy League, law school. I was headed to law school, didn't go there. I, I'm the first Hinman male in four generations not to be a lawyer. Before that, they were all farmers, dairy farmers in upstate New York. I did believe in Jesus, and I took that Bible with me to boarding school and college, but I set it on my bedside table. I didn't know really what to do with it. I would turn to it, but I would only turn to it for comfort or inspiration from time to time. At that point in my life, Jesus was nothing more for me than a means toward an end, the fulfillment of my own life goals and ambitions. He had not yet become the end and the means. But he broke in. He broke in again a second time when I was in college. I got to this place because of my academic studies where these claims that Christians were making, I don't know, I'm not sure. I mean, that was me at that time. And I started to investigate my faith. I honored my own unbelief as uh, Luke and Theophilus discover they are to do as well. I pursued and wrestled with uh, questions. The same kinds of questions we've been talking about these last several weeks in this series. And you know what? Something began to change for me. And the only way I could explain it is that while it wasn't as dramatic as the Apostle Paul's experience, I was having an experience of the living Jesus Christ, that he was breaking in to my life. And I gotta tell you, it was not easy. If you think, oh, that's great, I wish I could have that. I just warn you, it, I carried a bottle of Mylanta in my backpack for a whole year. And the reason for that is, my world was changing so much, my stomach was pumping acid, right? My, my, my sense of what reality is was changing. My sense of who I was and the purpose of my life was changing. My sense of what the hope for the world was was changing so dramatically. This was very uncomfortable for me. It, it was very uncomfortable for my parents as well, by the way, who couldn't make heads or tails of what was going on. They were afraid. But my life was changing. I started organizing university students to say, hey, let's look at who Jesus is. I started working with the poor, sitting on the train tracks on the way to work. I uh, started working in a soup kitchen. I started an inner city ministry, continued to do that. I, I pursued racial reconciliation. Man, I was changing. Everything was changing inside my life. The, the way I partied, the way I dated. By the way, changes for the good. All changes for the good. And there was a sense of peace. And there was a sense of joy. And there was a sense of belovedness that I had not ever experienced until this time of my life. The point is that before he could lead me, before he could heal me, I had to give him permission, hear this, to change my mind. I had to give him permission to say no to me. 
I had to let him confront me. I had to let him challenge me. I had to let him threaten my most cherished beliefs. And that is not comfortable. What I'm saying is, to find your life, the, the life you're meant to find, you have to let him change your mind. A man who changed his mind. He seems like the rarest of beasts these days. Let's declare him an endangered species. Today, you and I live in a day when we hear just what we want to hear, when we huddle with people who think the same way we think. If somebody thinks differently, we say, this space is unsafe space. Right? We live in a day where we're not willing to meet the kind of Jesus that Paul met on the road to Damascus. I mean, that was not a safe space on that road. And Jesus was not a safe Messiah. He was good, but not safe. When we have a Jesus who is safe, we have a Jesus who never disagrees with us, who never challenges us, who only exists to comfort and inspire us when we feel a little a need for a boost. This is not the real Jesus. This is a Jesus of our own fabrication. This is a Jesus we don't let change our minds. Peter Weiner was the writer of the uh, Atlantic article that I recommend you read uh, two weeks ago. And he quotes Pastor Scott Dudley. Uh, Scott Dudley says, you know, we meet many people today who will change their religion on the basis of their politics. We meet very few people who will change their politics on the basis of their religion. We are formed more by the news than we are by the Bible. And we are more committed to our politics than we are committed to the Bible. We will not let Jesus change our minds. And yet, the Apostle Paul says to the Romans, make sure you get this, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You think differently. You will live differently. So that, he says, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect to find the life you're meant to find. You have to let him change your mind. Which brings us around to the final question of the series. What would it take to let Jesus change your mind? Have we given Jesus permission to change our minds? Have you? Now, maybe you're not sure about Jesus at all. I mean, you're in this process that many of us are in, exploring faith or deconstructing faith. I just want to ask you this question. Have you given him permission to change your mind in that process? Because there's no way to know God without that. If, If there is really God, this God would be offensive to every culture at at least one point. Absolute truth? Of course we'd struggle. Maybe you're not sure about what Jesus is doing with your life. Yes, you have faith. You know Jesus. Your faith is firm. But let me tell you, there's a danger with a firm faith, and that's that the firm faith can become a fixed faith. Fixed in the past. Fixed in what you figured out. Fixed in what's familiar. A fixed Jesus is not a Jesus who can transform our lives. So I ask you, would you give Jesus, permission to change your mind. Because there's no way to grow in God without allowing him to do so. Here's what, here's what I think. 
there's something about this not sure experience these past several weeks that I want to hold on to. Because I, I, I'm coming to believe that if, if I'm not sure, it might just let me be constantly open to the surprise and new life that we find and should find in Jesus Christ. God become man. Remember God promised uh, through Isaiah this in verse 26, chapter 26, verse 3, the one whose mind is stayed on God, he keeps in perfect peace because they trust in him. There's a promise for today. The one whose mind is stayed on God, he keeps in perfect peace because they trust in him. Isaiah 26, 3. And I gotta say, I am so glad for you. You do this really well. I'm, I'm grateful for this church. This is a church whose mind is stayed on God. And there is space for everything else, including questions. That is such a gift to me, and I know it's such a gift uh, to so many as well. We are stayed on God because our faithfulness to the scriptures. We're reading it together. We believe that as we do that, we will encounter the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, the Messiah that Paul met, will meet us here today. And so let me ask you finally, what's your next step on this journey? What's your next step? How will you continue this conversation with Jesus? With whom will you continue this conversation about Jesus? When will you do it? I'd like to ask you to pray before you leave today for just one thing that you could do that would extend the conversation and push you into that area where you're not sure, but you're open to his truth. Remember Pastor Aaron told us last week, truth is a person. Well, here's what I believe. Jesus is coming for you. I believe that. Jesus is coming for you. And his grace will outdistance anything that keeps you from his love. We see it at the end of this tender interaction between two men, Agrippa and Paul. Let me just read it for you again. Verse 28, Agrippa said to Paul, he's the king, right? Are you so quickly persuading me to become a Christian? And Paul replied, whether quickly or not, I pray to God that not only you, but also all who are listening to me today might become such as I am, except for these chains. For some, Paul teaches us here, Jesus breaks in quickly. That was his experience. But for others, Paul teaches us here, it takes a long time. And this was going to be Agrippa's experience, perhaps. For some, coming to faith is an event. For others, it's a process. But what we can say about both of these two men is they both have stubborn minds. Remember, Paul, he was killing Christians. And remember Agrippa, this Agrippa, he's the great-grandson of Herod the Great. You remember the Herods? The first Herod tried to kill Jesus when he was born. The second Herod beheaded John the Baptist, his son. His grandson killed the apostle James, the edge of a sword. And now Agrippa, his great-grandson, is here in this great hall with his sister Bernice. And there's a rumor that they're partners. What I'm saying is these are not only stubborn minds, these are broken hearts. These are people who very much in need of the forgiveness that Jesus gave Paul on that road to Damascus. Jesus breaks in with grace and his grace will outdistance anything that keeps us from his love. So whatever you got in your mind today, you can be sure of this, that Jesus gots you. Let's pray. 
Jesus, we dare to speak to you because we believe you're present in this moment, in this sanctuary. You are here. That's your promise. We don't even need to use our voices for you to know our thoughts and minds and hearts. And we thank you for that. Thank you for your faithful, unconditional, relentless pursuit of us with your grace. That no matter how many times we fail and fall and stumble on the way, you are always there beside us to lift us up into resurrection life. We pray that you'll do that again. In Christ's name, amen.